So of course, drugs are here, drugs are everywhere, you know. There's a, a blockbuster system, is what I call it, where you can rent a syringe and you have no clue who's going to use it before you or after you and how many times it's been used. When you take a bunch of people and you warehouse them and you don't actually provide any constructive programming, you don't provide any access to post-secondary education, you, they literally have limited movement and then you limit that movement even more the ability to interact or to go to library or go to the gym or go to the yard because of pandemic okay you don't leave many options for existence you're listening to narcotica a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them few aspects of society that are as dismally unproductive, to put it lightly, as the war on drugs. The abysmal response to climate change or the generalized failures of for-profit healthcare are really the only two things I can think of that dwarf the drug war in terms of sheer patheticness. 100 years, give or take, and nothing to show for this, quote, war, which everyone with a brain knows has never been about policing drugs. It's about policing people. The drugs themselves are more available than ever, while overdose deaths continue to shatter records. If this is a war, we lost long ago. I guess we don't have to tell you any of this. Surely you've been paying attention. If not, please just look around. We can't even keep drugs out of prisons. How does anyone think we can prevent drugs from coming into a country as large as the United States? In fact, prisons are probably the best example of why the war on drugs is doomed to keep on failing, at least until we get some real leadership on this issue. Here are three simple ways we can address addiction and overdose deaths in this country, so if you're a politician or policymaker or even just a voter, listen the fuck up. Number one, guaranteed housing for all. That's self-explanatory. Number two, a safe, regulated supply of drugs like we have for alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, pharmaceuticals, and in some places, cannabis. Do the same for heroin, meth, and cocaine, please. Thank you. Number three, free, voluntary access to addiction treatment. Not all drug use is addiction. Most of it isn't. So unless it's deemed problematic by you and only by you, it shouldn't be compulsory or difficult to get help. Do these three things, or fuck it, even just one of these things— And watch overdose deaths plummet. Watch as problematic substance use becomes manageable. Clearly what we're trying isn't working. Things are only getting worse. So I dare you to try something else besides putting people in cages, besides saddling them with debt or probation, besides stealing their kids, besides surveilling them, and on and on. Instead, we have the prison industrial complex. We have cops and judges that take on the role of doctors and community members. We have a system that is designed to oppress, marginalize, and criminalize rational human behavior. In today's society, using drugs makes logical sense. People use them for good goddamn reasons. All you have to do is listen to people who use drugs. They've been telling you this for decades. Harm reduction is an imperfect philosophy that serves as the only wedge between prohibition and what we all really want, 
which is a healthy, productive society. Yet, harm reduction in prisons, arguably the one place where it is needed most, is almost completely absent. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. On today's episode, we spoke to someone who is currently, sadly, behind bars. Because of that, we are using their adopted pseudonym, C. C is a writer and advocate interested in prison and criminal justice reform, LGBTQ rights, harm reduction, and government and cultural criticism. She has studied history and theology with a third order of Carmelites and completed degrees in systematic theology and is currently studying law. C has some brilliant writing being published in Filter Magazine, which we will have links to in the show notes. On this episode, we talk all about drug use in prisons, from K2 to fentanyl, the problems of lack of syringe access, let alone access to buprenorphine or methadone, and much, much more. But before we get to that, let me briefly tell you a little bit more about Narcotica. Narcotica is an independent production by a trio of journalists, including myself, Troy Farah, Zachary Siegel, and Chris Moraff. And our producer and sound wizard is all-around brilliant human being, Aaron Ferguson. Narcotica is dedicated to covering drugs from a perspective of compassion, science, and evidence. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all that. So do the like and subscribe thing, please. It does help us out. You can visit our beautiful website, narcocast.com, to find all kinds of episodes on psychedelics, opioids, stimulants, learn more about like the history of methadone or abortion pills or all the weird new cannabis stuff that's coming out, like Delta-8 THC. Drugs are fascinating. Like, how the fuck do these little chemicals we put in our body have such a profound effect on our mind and our health? We're exploring these topics and much more, so we invite you to join us. About 70 people make Narcotica possible, all via Patreon. So just go to patreon.com slash narcotica. Patrons can request free stickers, which are personally mailed to you. You can get a discount in our shop or request a shout out on the show. You can also pick up merch at narcocast at myshopify.com or just go to narcocast.com and click on shop in the corner. We've got t-shirts and mugs designed by the amazing artist Ryan Gray and much more coming soon. Thanks for helping us pay our bills. Like you, we have to weather this bullshit inflation crisis. It is yet another manufactured disaster thanks to pathetic leadership, but we'll stop there. That's enough politics. (laughs) Thanks for listening and keeping us on the air. We're just a little podcast that wants to see some goddamn common fucking sense applied to drug policy. That's all the boring shit. On to the show. Our guest today is C, who is once again a writer and advocate interested in prison and criminal justice reform, LGBTQ rights, harm reduction, and government and cultural criticism. She is a brilliant writer who has many compelling articles in Filter Magazine, which we encourage you to check out after listening. C, welcome to the show. Hi, Troy. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you today on Narcotica. Yeah. um, I've been reading your writing on Filter, and it's really good. Um, It's a different perspective that you don't get a lot, I think. Um, but for, for listeners who just like have no idea who you are or anything about you, uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and, and, and where you are right now and, and that kind of thing? Sure, absolutely. So I go by the name C Dreams. It's a pseudonym. C as the first name. Dreams is the last name. And I am incarcerated. I am a prison rights activist, a criminal justice reform activist, a sex offender registration activist. I do a lot of consultation with think tanks and organizations about trying to create policies and practices that are actually community-centered, restorative justice approaches that are actually like true in the sense of rehabilitation and redemption. I tend to do quite a bit of journalism about prison conditions and trying to write stories that 
amplify the humanity of prisoners while kind of compelling transparency on the part of prison crats or prison officials. I'm also a theologian who studies um, both history and religion, and I have particular interest on systems of extremism, but also I have interest in studying the intersection of religion with crime, punishment, and redemption. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've really appreciated what you've been doing for Filter. I, I don't know if you've been writing for other publications as well, but it's just, you know, it's really humanizing um, or, or illuminating sort of the experience that a lot of prisoners are going through. Um, tell me a little bit about that, because you, you, there's this really interesting article uh, that you did, um, The Great Meltdown in Prisons, A Drug War Without Harm Reduction. Um, I just... I thought this was really interesting because it talked a little bit about um, how the pandemic sort of changed uh, what drug use is like in prison. Um, so Absolutely. can you tell me a little bit about about this? Sure. So, you know, the current kind of situation or landscape in prison is one that is very multifactored as far as causality goes. The, the, we saw a, a staffing downturn begin probably in 2019, late 2018, early 2019, but it kind of hit, um, you know, catastrophic proportions at right before COVID became like really, really strong. The pandemic was kind of the coup de grace for the staffing complex inside of not just Georgia's prisons, but, you know, kind of the correctional enterprise all across this nation. Um, correctional understaffing is certainly an unsung pandemic of its own. But um, in such an environment where there really isn't much programming, there isn't really much movement, there really isn't anything productive to do that the state provides, although there are some people that are utilizing their time by their own means, they're doing what I call self-rehabilitation. So of course, drugs are here, drugs are everywhere, you know, and um the state has never taken any interest in harm reduction practices or the philosophy. And so kind of um, when the, pand the pandemic hit and staffing went down and the prisons literally kind of reverted to, uh, I don't know if you ever saw that movie Life with Martin Lawrence, where kind of you kind of see the prisoner walking around with a shotgun, um, you know, policing the other prisoners. Well, it hasn't gotten quite that bad, but it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty much there. And so... Um, the prison administrations have pretty much just allowed the drugs to come in as much as they could because they understood that it was um, self-medicating. And the kind of processes that were in place before to try to regulate contraband of different types and also to try to, um, you know, there's no harm reduction. It's all abstinence approach here. So those have all fallen away. And um, what you now have now is you have a landscape that's changed from being pretty much tobacco and alcohol, a little bit of weed, to just a proliferacy of methamphetamines, K2, suboxone strips, um, strips of paper that are sprayed with insecticide that are being smoked. And um, it's really gotten bad because there is no staff to provide security or medical responses. Yeah, that's pretty devastating you know first of all i think prison really illustrates the fertility of the drug war like if you can't keep drugs out of prison then what's the point of trying to keep them out of the country like and and i think that this is something that's not talked about enough um that that prisons need harm reduction too um that prisoners don't get access to sterile syringes 
and in most cases there might be exceptions i'm not like an expert on this or anything um i can't speak for other states but not not here no they um they are perfectly aware of what's happening they're aware that there's a, a blockbuster system is what i call it where you can rent a syringe and you have no clue who's going to use it before you or after you and how many times it's been used right so there's a real incentive there to provide tools to prevent the spread of hiv and hepatitis c and and prevent other harms of injection drug use. Yes, which Georgia has a high prevalence of both HIV and, um, uh, um, sorry, HIV and hepatitis uh, among prisoners, some of the highest prevalence in the country. So why don't they do that? I mean, it seems like it's common sense. Like, it's not that controversial to give syringes in, in, in most contexts, but suddenly in prison it is? I don't understand that. You know, if you spoke to most prisoners and you, asked, and you said something like, oh, this is just common sense, or that makes good sense, I guarantee you that you would hear a response, something along the lines of, well, that's why they don't do it. Or that makes too much sense is what we'll say. Like, why won't they do this? And then the response will be, oh, well, that makes too much sense. Uh, the the yeah. kind of rule of thumb is, and I, I think if you read that article, you saw I spoke with a guy who was a part of the push to actually begin to implement what would we would term harm reduction practices now back in the 90s when it came to um, tattooing and tattoo needles. Um, because it was happening anyway. And what happened is all of the guys were retaliated against. They were locked up, their privileges, they were locked up in, in segregation, solitary confinement, their privileges were taken away. And in some cases, they were even shipped to more violent, more volatile um, facilities to separate them so they couldn't organize together. And that's what happens is when you come to prison officials for any type of thing, whether it be needles, the syringes, whether it be to... Um, really anything that is meant to be reformatory or rehabilitative or just to put like safety measures in place, you're going to get pushback. And asking me to fathom the kind of, I guess, bureaucratic slash cultural psychology but behind, you know, carceral agencies like the Department of Corrections, I can't understand their, re their reasoning at all. But it's, it's not hard for me to make the leap that these people don't see prisoners as human. And, and we know this because there's a rhetoric in our politics and in our culture and even in some areas of academia that tries to, to dehumanize and to depict prisoners, um, incarcerated people as being less than human or not being worthy of the same things that we see as being necessary or adequate for other human beings. And the reason why I say this is I can kind of extrapolate from the fact that we know that sex has been happening in prisons for God only knows how long. And yet we don't have a prison system that passes out condoms or makes it not taboo or not stigma, you know, stigmatized to seek HIV or STD screening. So mm -hmm. if we can see that they won't take the bare measure, the bare measure, like they know that sex is happening. There's, you can actually receive a disciplinary report for it. You can have your privileges taken, not see your family, all types of stuff. So if they won't even get out condoms or if they won't even allow you to have an HIV test without embarrassing hoops to jump through. Of course, they don't care about providing other types of measures that are ultimately reductionist when it comes to harm. Yeah, yeah. I should say none of this is really surprising. It, 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 it's very clear to me that the entire justice system, but especially the carceral aspect of it, is designed uh, to dehumanize people and punish them and... It, it's like sadistic. It's inflicting pain on people on purpose. There's there's no reason for this uh, to be so 
cruel or to deny like bare minimum stuff. I mean, it's fucked up, and I don't know how we change it. But I, I guess you know, at least talking about it and like bringing it to people's forefront, like this is what it's really like. Like it's 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 strange. Um, and and the drug scene in prison seems to be pretty different from from stuff on the street a little bit because. It's a lot more concentrated. It seems like they want things that are um, easier to smuggle or conceal. Um, you were talking about these strips of paper that are sprayed with drugs. Yes, absolutely. The the insecticide thing was kind of weird to me. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> well, the, the reason why is because like a year ago or so, somebody was asking me to investigate this these reports that were showing up in local media of teenagers getting high on raid and spraying insecticide in their mouths or a bag or something and inhaling it. I said, Oh yeah, it's happening. Um, when I was doing my research for this story, I wanted to figure out if this was just a prison phenomena. So I looked for other, um, pieces of media or press that were about other prison systems and then about States. And, um, of course I found quite a bit of material relating to like, fire departments from Florida and Kentucky and Iowa, mm-hmm. but not so much in prison. To the best of my knowledge, I'm the first journalist to actually um, cover it in this way and using sources from inside the prison. But oh, it, it's happening and it's, it's, it's really frightening, but it all comes down to economics. So that's what's weird because these stories that I was hearing in local news, they seemed like they were like one-off stories. These kids tried this thing and maybe it hurt them. Um, but it wasn't really like a trend. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm sort of familiar with how the media cycles these myths over and over again. Like every Halloween, you hear about Halloween candy being laced with fentanyl or some kind of weird drug or something. Um, and there's with- so many fentanyl users out there who are mad because they just went out there this past Halloween hoping to get some fentanyl candy and didn't <laughs> get the first piece. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. With the raid thing, it seems like um, that wasn't really that much of a trend with like kids and stuff like that it's i don't think that's happening very often if if it's really even happening at all but in prison it does seem like a different situation where people are spraying pieces of paper with raid and then smoking it but um have you tried that personally i mean you don't have to answer that question if you don't want to but um i'm curious like how does it feel like why would you why would you do that is it really even that much of a high that you can get from it i actually tried them when they were because at first it was k2 strips coming in the system and then when it became clear that there was kind of a switchover due to not being able to get them in or the people trying to smuggle them in were being like knocked off and, and, you know, getting arrested or whatever, whatever happened, or maybe it was just once again, sheer economics, people realized that it cost them less to produce insecticide covered strips than K2 strips. And they could make just as much, if not more profit. Um, so around the time that that rumor started coming out and then we started seeing people, no longer having like decent highs, but like falling out and having these frightening kind of hallucinations or whatever, um, and palpitation, seizures, all types of stuff. Around that time was the time that I discontinued my use because I was okay with a little recreational K2. I was not okay with smoking Raid. And yeah. actually, since that time, I've completely gone sober. I don't even smoke cigarettes anymore. That was just personal choice that I made for myself. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, when you, when you see person after person after person seize up and it kind of, they, their, their physiological response was exactly like that of a, you know, cockroach when it's hit by raid or insecticide, you know, they stunned feet waggling in the air, seizing, seizing up, 
Um, some people had literally had heart arrest from it. And, uh, that that's, I couldn't, I couldn't take that risk. And, um, there are still people who are choosing to smoke it and it's, it's terrifying. And like you said, I was not able to find any actual indication of a trend of youth doing this. It seems to be primarily a phenomena localized to prisons. And I have found a trend across this nation's prison systems, um, state prison systems, where it seems to have a commonality. Yeah, I like to emphasize this a lot, that people who use drugs are really creative and really smart, and they can figure out all kinds of different ways to get high and everything. And I think when you're in prison, like you have a lot less resources, a lot less access. And so some of these like really <laughs> I, I creatively designed pipes and, and, and for smoking meth or, or you know, uh, how you make like um, moonshine in your cell or something like that. It's like kind of ingenious in a way. And so I, I guess that's sort of why people would be using insecticide like this. The K2 is interesting as well. Just just for listeners, that's synthetic cannabinoids. Um, it's sort of a blanket term for all kinds of different drugs that mimic THC uh, and, and, and cannabis um, because it's sort of just like a chemical that's sprayed onto like an herbal component, right? Like when you do K- K2 in prison, it's not, or correct me if I'm wrong on this, like it's not generally a uh, a plant material. It's just like a, a liquid or, or, or sprayed onto a paper, correct? Yeah, they would, they usually either, if they were able to pay the exorbitant cost, like three, $400 for a, a small, for like a perfume sized bottle, like a small bottle of spray, they could spray it on their tobacco, on their weed or whatever if they wanted to. But what most people are doing is they're buying strips. So like, imagine like your regular piece of white, you know, copier printer paper, and they would cover that whole piece of white paper in this K2 formula. And then that paper would be divided up into sections about the size of your state driver's license and a single one of those cards, depending on what institution, because there's an economy in prison systems and the economy varies from institution to institution, but also from prison region to prison region, because there are in most states, there are regions that are, um, they're overseen by different corrections officials and they tend to have different, you know, variations when it comes to pricing and even sometimes in pay system or conversion. That's something else we can get into later if you're interested. Yeah. But, um, but um, so one of those cards could go anywhere between 50 to 200 bucks from my research, depending on the region and facility. And then each of those cards can break down into like 20 to 50 individual little strips, depending on how you were to cut it with a, a little razor or whatnot or tear it off into pieces. And an individual little strip of paper, um, a little piece a sliver is the best way I can explain it might go for anywhere between two and five bucks. Interesting. Yes. So, and that's what they would do. They'll take the little piece of paper and they'll roll it up in either some Bible paper or some rolling paper, like tobacco rolling paper and smoke it. Or sometimes they will um, pay for what's called a, a drop, which is essentially somebody will take a, um, like a cellophane, or a little baggie, and they'll spray some of the K2 directly into it or pour it directly into it, and then let you um, take it orally. Wow. What, what does K2 feel like? Because I've actually done synthetic cannabinoids a long time ago, like in 2011. Um, and I had some really bad experiences on it. Like, I, I once pooped my pants. Um, <laughs> that was fun. Um, you know, but like, there was like, 
it was a lot more hallucinatory and like weird. And, and I was also mixing it with alcohol a lot. And it was just like a, it, it was just a, a bad experience and I, I didn't like it, but I know that the chemistry of it is constantly changing and it can vary a lot, but what was your experience like on it? Um, the very, <laughs> I'm religious too. So like, I don't know if maybe like my predisposition, the very first time I did it, it took me a while to do it again because I hallucinated, or maybe, maybe, maybe I had a paradigm shift for a paradigm shift for real. I don't know, but um, I had always kind of wondered what hell would be like, and I had like this hallucination that I was in hell, and hell was just this mass of human bodies or, or bodies, I guess, of people screaming out and crying out, and like trying to be heard, and like shoving each other, and it was like you know in like horror movies when it's like the swarm of rats or insects crawling all over each other, like pushing each other, shoving each other. That was what yeah. the humans looked like. And it was just dark and it was overcast. Like I tripped out and it was months before I tried it again. I was terrified. Like I really, <laughs> I really thought maybe I had got, you know, mind altering drugs, like, you know, um, peyotes and stuff have been used for for thousands of years to induce like trance and stuff. So I don't know like if you believe in that or whatnot. So I, I didn't know what to think, but I knew that I was wigged out <laughs> by it. But mm. um, a lot of people, myself included, it was like, you know, like being on a train, everything was really fast. And it was like, boom, 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 boom in your ears. And um, very trippy. <sighs> um, once I kind of got a little tolerance to it, actually, it was very similar to weed. But the initial, initially smoking it, super psychedelic almost actually interesting yeah i mean that, that does bring up psychedelics for me um because like in, in the article i noticed that wasn't mentioned very much um but i mean tell me how common it is to use psychedelics in prison um i i, I we're sort of getting into like how you know pieces of paper that can have drugs on them are easier to get into prison so that to me like says something like acid or even some of the analogs, or that that would be easier to get into prison. Um, but is that is that very common? I imagine it'd be expensive. Well, even though we like to think of drugs as having kind of a race impartiality, there is um, there is a a, a culturality and a, and a racial partiality to drugs in prison here down in Georgia. Most of the drugs that you see, like you don't really. And I, I hate to say this because I don't know how to say it without like, so for a little, I, we saw a small blimp of shrooms for just a short, hot minute years ago, like shrooms were kind of a thing for a few months and then it was, they were over it. But it seems like acid and like LSD, like psychedelic oriented drug, like they haven't made their way or they don't have any standing or popularity in prison. Like from what I've heard back in the 90s and early 2000s, crack was really big in prison. And then it was just weed and alcohol and cigarettes. And then meth kind of became to come in a little bit. And then meth went out for a while and then it came back super strong because before everybody was like, oh, well, only white boys do meth in prison. But now it's like everybody is doing it in prison. And before they were saying, well, oh, you know, only black guys are, are smoking the, the crack. But now, but then towards the end of, cracks dominance everybody was smoking it and so it seems to be like certain drugs have a harder time catching on but it does seem like um it takes a while for drugs that have a stereotype of being attached to one type of racial community to like spread around and even now like 
I hear some of my friends, I still have plenty of friends who are like, you know, like I was actually just talking to my friend, showing him your podcast. I was like, I'm going to be on this podcast. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, it just seems like those drugs haven't caught on. And I think maybe because those drugs are like attached to a different scene, they're kind of like the rave and the music scene. I don't know. I just haven't seen their presence like that. And as a, a person that grew up kind of like in, um, you know, kind of, I would say half indie, the half kind of like scene skater thing. I've, I'd done LSD and acid as a kid more than I should have, <laughs> but yeah. You know, so if it was here, I definitely would have, but I, I've never seen it. Like I said, I saw Strooms pop up for a few months and then it was gone and that's been about it. Yeah. I, I interviewed someone who was incarcerated in a uh, prison in the UK and they were getting LSD and I think 5-MeO DMT and DMT and other kinds of stuff like that. And just like was tripping out in their cell like constantly and it, prison seems like a really bad place to be high sometimes, but it also seems like the best like thing to do while you're there is just like kind of change your consciousness, right? Yeah. Well, I was just recent. I just recently had this conversation. When you take a bunch of people and you warehouse them, and you don't actually provide any constructive programming, you don't provide any access to post secondary education. You, they literally have limited movement. And then you limit that movement even more, the ability to interact or to go to library or go to the gym or go to the yard because of pandemic. Okay. You don't leave many options for existence. The reality is, is that Georgia and many states, the life without and life with parole sentences are being passed out with more, you know, frequency, more regularity. And as one of the guys in my article said, he said something to the effect of, since we can't get out, we might as well get fucked up. If you sit this person in here and they have nothing but time ahead of them. And for example, take me, I came to prison. I was, a, I was arrested when I was 19. I got convicted when I was 21. So to a 19 year old or a 21 year old, if you tell them that they have a 30 year sentence, okay, that time seems inconceivable. It's like, what do I do with this? And when I first came to prison, I didn't have a plan. And I'm, I'm fond of saying this. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a direction. I didn't know that I was going to end up getting a college degree. I didn't know any of that. I was just trying to figure out how to get through this time. And um, for a lot of people, they already come from drug consumption or drug use backgrounds. And what's so funny is for a, a carceral and a policing culture in America that is obsessed with penalizing and criminalizing drugs and incarcerating drug users and drug sellers. It's so funny because so many of the people that I know who are in prison for that reason are getting high now to get through their time. So it's like, there's a dead vault in the system. The system is, is failing. It's self-defeating because what else, what else are you providing them? And so it's kind of ironic that <laughs> we incarcerate people for drug use and then we make it extra, extremely accessible, but more than accessible, we make it a, um, a, you know, an appealing alternative because there is nothing else for these men and women to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that, like, what is the fucking point of putting people in a cage if you're not going to, like, try to help them improve their lives, right? Like, give them something to do so that you know, that's what the whole point of rehabilitation should be, right? Like... Um, I, I really like this article you did about using meth um, to educate yourself. 
uh, while you're in prison. Like, can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, you know, it's just, I love a positive meth story because you just hear so many bad ones and it's just like such a misrepresentation of the drug. I mean, of course, meth can be problematic, but so can every drug. Yeah, every drug can be problematic. <laughs> yeah, but for you, meth was really helpful while you were in prison. Tell me about that. Yeah, so it's not just for me either. I want to put this on the record because I know some people, like my friend, Dr. Benjamin Boyce, I was actually just did something with him the other day. My friend, Benjamin Boyce, him and his wife, same way, got their college degrees on meth. But, you know, meth was part of my catharsis. It was part of my healing process. It was part of my ability to claim my own self-worth because prior to prison, like I had come from a very traumatic very broken background. I didn't have any sense of purpose or direction. I didn't know what I want to do with my life. I had like no control, no self-regulation. And initially meth was just like my coping process. Like I'm in prison, I'm trying to get fucked up. I'm trying to get through this, but all of the energy and the hyper-focus and I, you know, I'd like to consider myself a fairly smart cookie. (laughs) So you know, I already, I had this hyper focus or whatever, and I was going through some tough time with prison officials getting, you know, the continuation of my transition or, or gender affirming medical care. And, um, I was also trying to change some classification and housing policies that would make transsexual women who are incarcerated in men's prisons more safe. So I began studying law while I was geeked up. And um, because of that, I actually created numerous changes in the operational policies, the standard operating procedures of the Department of Corrections. I created a legal precedent that has been cited by the ACLU and is in their handbook on protecting the rights and the safety of transgender prisoners. Wow. My case law has become guiding bright line rule for Eighth Amendment claims around transgender prisoner care. And... <laughs> On top of that, meth gave me the ability and the the commitment to stick with writing literally hundreds of letters. I'm not exaggerating. Hundreds of letters to finally secure a financial sponsor to pay for my education. It put me through my bachelor's program, through my master's program, and um, helped me to start writing it. And eventually... My experience with it and with harm reduction and meeting people like my best friend, Sessie Blanchard. Sessie, if you hear this, I love you. <laughs> but um, Sessie Blanchard, who is a New York City-based journalist and harm reduction activist who I met because I was trying to learn about harm reduction philosophies and practices and how I could begin to implement it in my community in prison because you know a lot of the trans girls have looked up to me and I wanted to see my girls thriving. So I'm trying to figure out how to, to do that for them. So at some point, you know, I actually was able to claim my power over drugs and I was actually able to sounds, I know it sounds oxymoronic, but through using meth, I was able to take power over my drug addiction. And when I was ready, I exercised my own discretion to decide that I didn't want to be high anymore, but everything that I've accomplished at one point or another, I have to tip my hat to the use of methamphetamines. And that is a crazy but totally true story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not really that different from college kids using Adderall to write their thesis or whatever. And 
I, I don't think it's that contradictory to think that, you know, meth can help you um, quit other drugs or, or even become sober. Um, you know, I think that there is some clarity that the drug can give you some like just self understanding, self reflection. And we always hear these stories of people that kind of like lose their minds on it, but I don't think that's really representative of it's it. It's the opposite for me. Yeah, it's the opposite for a lot of people. I spent long nights, like, you know, I'm a theologian. I spent long nights, kind of here to coin um, St. John of the Cross. I, I spent long nights, uh, dark nights of the soul, kind of praying and, and trying to figure out who I am and who I wanted to be and what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And was I worthy? Could I be loved? You know, especially when I, I had a terrible sexual assault happen to me and I, I got diagnosed with HIV because of that. So that was wow. a huge time in my life that meth was definitely a part of my healing process. And it was a part of, you know, coming to terms with who I am and coming to terms with who I could be, but more importantly about setting the terms of how I was going to interact with the world and how I was going to live my life. And I don't think that I would have the sense of purpose that I have now. I owe, I owe so much to it, but at a certain point, I realized I didn't need it anymore. And I didn't, I didn't particularly want it anymore because it didn't fit into my story about who I was. Because I can't very well, be, I mean, there might very well be some pastors, which I'm not in pastoral care at all. I'm, I'm strictly scholarly when it comes to my capacity in, in theology and in religious studies and history. Mm -hmm. But the identity that I was beginning to coalesce and the person that I envisioned and the things that I wanted to do with my life it simply didn't fit that trajectory anymore, but it was, there was actually like a whole grieving process, a ritual of letting go that I went through, but it was beautiful and it was powerful. And when I did that, I didn't realize how much of my trauma and my pain that I had already let go of through meth, but what remained, I largely let go of when I let go of meth at the same time. So it was, it was very beautiful. It was like being in a relationship with somebody who helps you heal and helps teach you so much about yourself and helps you leave. And, you know, but you're not meant to be with that person. And so when you leave, you leave being better. And everybody that comes to know you, whether it be platonically or romantically, they don't even know that they owe this person that was your ex so much thanks and credit for this kind of like beautiful person that you're able to be and that's how it is for me with math yeah absolutely that, that's kind of beautiful and i do think that's a, a a truth that uh exists a lot of drugs that uh it's sort of you have a relationship with them that's sort of on the same level not not maybe the same level as a human relationship but it, it is sort of similar in a lot of ways um maya solovitz talks about this a lot that like um Addiction is sort of like falling in love with a substance. Like, 100. <laughs> you could have a really problematic, abusive relationship, and you, you're like, why can't you leave this person that is bad for you? And then you can have that sort of same relationship with a drug. But you can also have a really, um, you know, healthy and beautiful relationship. And I have that same relationship with Twitter right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of want to go back to, you know, how smaller and smaller drugs are, you know, more concentrated versions of drugs or what sort of gets smuggled into prisons more. This is sort of called the iron law prohibition. Like the more penalties there are for drug use, the more incentive there is to 
put these concentrated high dose chemicals i'm really getting at fentanyl um that is you know can be sprayed onto paper and smuggled into the mail um and this is i don't know if you heard about this but um at rikers in uh new york um they're talking about banning mail and packages because drugs are getting into into the jail so easily because you can just spray them onto the paper or whatever yeah, I, I actually have heard about that. Um, I'm very in touch with a lot of the act, the activists in New York who are involved, not just that, but everything about messy Rikers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's super yeah. fucked up. It's it's like, why? I It's hard. Funny thing about it is Rikers is kind of following. It's just Rikers gets a lot of press, but that's already mm-hmm. begun to happen down here in Georgia, slowly but surely down the chain from the most um high max level security prisons to the lesser level security prisons that's beginning to happen they're really waiting for right now the gdc is in the middle of a switch from one um from jpay to securus for its electronic communication system once it does that we fully anticipate that they will eliminate mail so ultimately what we have happening in georgia is they are beginning to try to completely digitalize the entire process of mail. So currently what's happening is that at some facilities, it hasn't become universal yet across the state's facilities, but at some facilities, as mail comes in, it will eventually be scanned. And the reason why I say eventually is because they don't have enough staff. So it's months of backlog. It'll be scanned and it will be sent in kind of a virtual form to the kiosk in your living unit or your dormitory. And for prisoners that have access to one of the prison-issued tablets, they'll be able to view the virtual version of their postage-based mail on their tablet device. But ultimately, the goal is to completely do away with postage-based mail and digitalize all mail. But the problem with that, of course, is that um, they require individuals who want to send you electronic mail through the kiosk system, they require them to submit to a background check, and that means they cannot have a felony. So it's ultimately has First Amendment implications. So at this point, Georgia is willing to break the law to curve law, uh, to curve drugs from entering into its systems. That is just so fucked up. I, I can't imagine what that's like to just like, you know, you get a, a handwritten letter or something like that, and then someone else just scans it, and then you get a little JPEG of it or something. That's just dehumanizing very much so it's Um, dehumanizing you you know and the thing about it is there's always been a trend of like wives and sisters they put perfume or maybe like smell of some food on it or or mm -hmm. something like that so there's like even little touches that people are losing out on but what's so crazy is that i understand they're willing to they want to do this because they they, want to try to curtail drugs entering their system but the reality is, is they're not willing to change their policy when it comes to who can, you know, you're supposed to, when you're incarcerated, be able to correspond with anybody that you want to, so long as there's not a court order stopping you from doing so. But um, the prison system doesn't allow you to email or receive emails from somebody who has not consented to a background check. So it's like, if I want to contact the press or I want to reach out to a human rights organization or if I want to look for housing assistance or try to secure a job before I get out or any numerous reasons to email, I can't write a letter. So what what am I going to do? 
So this is kind of a continuation on the war of drugs because what we saw on the outside world with the war on drugs is extensive collateral willing to do any amount of damage to families and communities in order to pursue this one narrow conservative ass agenda of essentially drug censorship and the criminalization of it. Well, in a way, this continues that legacy. Absolutely. And, and that is a really good summary of how of, of, of what has happened with the war on drugs. I, I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, just it is so much about shredding people's rights. And, uh, you know, it's um, a scorched earth approach to what's really a health problem, if, if it is even a problem. I don't think all drug use is a problem, but for the stuff that is a problem, like it's a health problem, not a criminal justice thing. And we've I been think using... it's more of a class issue. I think this is a matter of the ruling class trying to strip autonomy. This is just mm-hmm. another way that the, the fight to strip autonomy is expressed. It's a, it's a kind of a, a philosophical accident of that that struggle. Yeah. And, and, and banning the mail or, you know, scanning it before you give it to people like that's not going to stop the flow of drugs into prisons like let's be honest here that's not possible there's just so many other ways it can get in um and so so what why would what's the point of even doing that in the first place like it's just literally taking away someone's rights i can't fully substantiate it it is to some degree conjecture and but it is i'm almost 100 certain that it's accurate a few years ago, um, I cannot remember this journalist's name. He was a journalist, but he wrote a book. And it was kind of set in a, in a fiction form, kind of. But it was true. He just used fiction to blo- you know, to, to essentially protect himself. I can't remember what it was. But it talked about how drugs that come across the border by the Mexican cartel, the government, the U.S. government, um, is allowed to get so much, but it's only for the public's sake. Okay. There's a vested interest in in having drugs in circulation. Well, I believe the same thing happens with prisons. I believe that this prison system, there is a black market and drugs are that. And the primary producers, or should I say conveyors of the product are those who work in the correctional setting, COs, nurses, contractor staff, even administrators, they bring it in. So here's the thing is if you have the monopoly on a market, but all of a sudden there's a new source of product being conveyed into the institutions and it's coming from loved ones and friends and business partners (laughs) of incarcerated people, you're seeing, number one, you're, you're losing control of that monopoly, but number two, you're seeing a loss, whether modest or significant and profits. But also there's kind of a change in dominance. You're not able to be dominant. You don't have an actual control over the socioeconomic principles of the prison, but also kind of like the psychological principles of the prison. I fully believe that drugs are going to continue to come in. And I believe they're going to come in even greater because the primary way they're coming in now is not through the mail. This this crackdown on the mail is just to remove a nuisance contender. That's all that is. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I agree with you. I think that's what's happening here. Um, it's it's not a conspiracy theory that the black market has been um, a slush fund for the government. Uh, the CIA has. This is, I know it sounds crazy whenever you bring up the CIA, but there's, there's like literal hard evidence that they were using heroin 
trafficking during the Vietnam War. And crack in the 70s and 80s. Exactly. Documents out there floating around. Yeah. And so I've always been like, okay, this flow of fentanyl that's coming into the US, like, I can't think of anything else. You know, I mean, like, there's, I don't see a lot of hard evidence of that yet. But like, a decade from now, we're going to learn that, oh, shit, this was all just and, and that's what makes it hard for me to like, see an end to the drug war. For the most part. What is that I, saying by, um, I think it's Carl Sagan, an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. just because I cannot prove it does not mean with everything that I know around, or everything that you or anybody that's in your position or in my position, everything that we know about the drug trade, everything that we know from being invested in this, okay? It's not an unreasonable leap, an unreasonable extrapolation for me to say the CIA. It's, it's, it's like... Yeah, <laughs> I, I know, but I, I just, I just feel maybe. I mean, I think that's what Operation Mockingbird was was basically like coining the term conspiracy theory so that you can dismiss people that bring up this topic and just be like, well, they're obviously a tinfoil hat wearing weirdo that just believes whatever. Uh, and you know, I'm not like I hate people like Alex Jones and stuff like that that will take any criticism of the government to the furthest extreme that everybody is like uh Satanist baby killing, you know, I don't know <laughs> the Clintons are whatever, you know, right. Like, but at the same time, there's a, a long documented history of drug trafficking being this, this, this tool for shadowy governments to, to gain power. And it totally is. It's an intrigue issue for sure. It's an intrigue issue. It's a way that they make, illicit connections and networks as far as information goes to get intel but it's also a backdoor way of financing but then also it's important for governments to maintain control through through the veneer of peace and order but through the actuality of division and conflict drugs mm. is just another part of the ongoing cultural clash and narrative in both America's long history and it's it's present right now. It's just another dividing line. And so they profit from it, maintain control on it, and then are able to spin multiple narratives around it that are ultimately serving to the established power and that kind of top echelon that you and I, people like you and I, will never know. We'll never know the truth. And so, of course, as you said, it's able to it's 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 rather easy to dismiss as kind of just like um conspiracy theorists or conspiracy nut or whatever but i don't believe in lizard people but i do believe in i don't i do believe in and you know and the same thing about it is we see all the way back to marx and other you know socialist thinkers showing us the different tools that that governments and the powers that be use to maintain control and one of the things they love is they love conflict whether it be in the form of religion whether it be in the form of fashion whether it be in the form of beauty standards whether it be when it comes to gender roles, drugs is just another line, another tool, another instrument being used in that. And the best part about it is just like every good tool, it generates funds. Yeah, absolutely. And the more stories that come out in the media saying that, oh, your kid is going to overdose on rainbow fentanyl or whatever, like the more... Um, and never, not one, never, not one has there ever been a confirmed like, oh, my God, this kid got some Halloween candy and he got high out of his mind and passed. It's never right. once happened. I know. Yeah. But you don't even have to have evidence of that. You just scare people into that. They 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 hear the news and then, um, you know, they, they, there's this perception that these drugs are so deadly that they, they support the war on drugs because 
it's insane not to if you have if you're hearing that it's going to kill all your kids or there was some mayor or police officer recently who was holding up a bag of flour at a press conference and he wrote like five pounds of deadly fentanyl on it or something and it's like this would kill everybody in the entire state if they all took this and it's like <laughs> you could do the same thing with two inches of water if you held everybody's face down in a line like the, the idea that you know just because fentanyl can kill five million people if it's in this concentrated form doesn't mean that's how it works but this scare tactic works over and over again for the general public and it's just insane i don't know what else to say about it well you you hit on it solidly a scare tactic is a what it's a mechanism of control you're controlling mm-hmm. a narrative and the reality is if our government if um lobbyist parties if invested you know interested groups actually cared about death rates and about violence we wouldn't have and i know guns is a very incendiary controversial topic but there's a reason why the uk and a lot of other european countries have the lowest murder rates and gun violence rates it's because they give a damn about death rates so like don't sit here and say this thing can kill because we know for a fact that yes it could but what about these things over here that are all over our streets in which anybody can get they can like a snap of a finger can get okay and yeah. we know for a fact it is one of the biggest sources of killing right now in our country so don't you can't sit here and act like you're interested in protecting lives and saying oh this will kill you because if you were you would be actually trying to do something to curtail an issue curtail a problem that i'm, I'm sorry curtail a phenomenon that is actually causing deaths not just theoretically could cause deaths but the use of, of theoretical fear or theoretical, um, you know, calamity is a popular conservative tool to maintain the status quo. We saw it when it comes when it came to, you know, when it came to the, the Reformation back in the 1500s. They said, well, the Protestants will take us away from the ties that we've built and to the nature of our Christianity and the nature of our Europeanism and the nature of our countries. Then we saw it with um, racism, and we saw it with desegregation. They said, well, if we do this, then Blacks will move into our neighborhoods. We will lose um, poverty lines. They'll, we'll, um, you know, we'll have to reallocate funds. Then when we came to the transgender, well, well, the gay people, when it came to gay people wanting to get married, oh, it will disintegrate the family units. You have to watch out. Your kids will get on drugs, and they'll get HIV, and they'll die, and the graduation rates will go down, and the family unit will flounder. With transgender women, it was, oh, my God, if you let them go into a bathroom, somebody's going to get raped. <laughs> it's, it's a constant tool that's being used, and it just, it just gets stressed up to fit whatever situation is necessary. And when it comes to drugs, it's no different. If anything, it's, it's probably most potent because it's been, well, it's been so well practiced with such consistency now. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's seductive. I have to admit, as a writer that like, you know, does fiction and stuff, like having you know, scary drug dealers that are trafficking stuff, I mean, that's, that's a fun narrative to go down if you but it's not accurate it's it's just as much fiction as uh wizards or something you know it's like just and wizards business. make for better fiction if i might say i, I agree i it, it seems like completely futile to even try to keep fentanyl out of prisons so why don't we do more harm reduction in prisons like are, are you allowed to have naloxone in your cell i mean no. And, you, you know, from that story that I, we were talking about earlier about the Great Meltdown is um, of the prisoners I polled, okay, I talked to dozens 
of prisoners. From what I've found is that most prisoners are even are completely unaware of what naloxone or Narcan even is. I asked prisoners, do they see officers wearing it? Do they have they seen it in medical? Have they ever seen it used? Is it in their control booths of their dormitory? Is it anywhere they've, you know, I asked them to ask staff members. And I had two prisoners, two prisoners at the same camp tell me that they that they kept Narcan in the booth and they kept it up in medical. Um, I had one prisoner tell me that he believed he saw the CERT team, which is the uh, certified emergency response team, carrying it on a keychain. But that's literally three prisoners out of the dozens and dozens that I polled. And the two prisoners that I spoke to at the same camp who said that they believed it was in the control booth, they also said that it was ineffective because there was no officer ever in the control booth because of the understaffing crisis. Yeah, yeah. There has been all this talk about an increase in crime and an increase in violent crime. Um, you know, a big part of that was at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was freaking out. And so every, a lot of people bought a gun. Um, and so there was like a huge surge in gun sales. And then like the, the, the increase in murder that was associated with that, like it's not a coincidence. I, I think there's all kinds of ways that uh, our systems are failing and creating these incentives for 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 more crime and more violence and that kind of thing. Um, Absolutely. And at this point, while I do not believe the system was originally designed for this function, I do believe that it has been repurposed and it's been intentionally repurposed. And the and interested parties, those that are in private corrections, governors like Kemp, who um, got millions of dollars of contributions from the private correctional healthcare company, WellPath out of Tennessee, that he sold the medical contract for. He privatized medical healthcare this year, but he got, well, he started the contract last year though, and he got the millions of dollars last year. The um, agencies that he's allowed to expand their purview here in Georgia, the private correctional agencies, mm -hmm. um, the private companies that he sold medical and mental health, um, mental health services to about two years ago. They all made millions of dollars of contributions. Companies like JPay and Securus um, and Union Supply, Direct Access, these companies that are leeches or parasites that feed off of the suffering and the kind of vulnerability of incarcerated people and their family. They have a vested interest and they're super satisfied with the way the system is right now. If anything, they would <laughs> they would just like richer prisoners. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I ask you, what your experience has been like in prison being a trans person? Like, I, I, I can't even imagine how much worse that is. Can, if you feel like sharing about that, though. It has been tough. It has been very trying. Um, prison, generally speaking, is very tough. I don't take it from anybody, you know. But um, the last few years have been easier. Um, I think that I've kind of built a reputation. People... I've won, you know, legal actions against the state and have changed policies and kind of built up a little name about myself and um, both prison officials, prison staff, correctional officers, they treat me a little better. They deal with me with a little bit more deference. I would say kind of like with kid gloves or whatever. Um, I think they think I'm constantly looking for my next lawsuit, <laughs> which is good. I want them to think that. Good. Yeah. But I was at other facilities that were, that were I was in danger. Um, I was sexually assaulted twice before actually and um had been hurt by other people 
picked on and bullied. Um, and it's really tough because it's, it's tough for anybody that doesn't meet this. You know, we talk about toxic masculinity in the outside world, but in prison, there is stuff doesn't change very long. People are in there for such long sentences often. And the idea of manhood and the kind of idea of cultural norms is, is very outdated. I would say that it's 30 to 40 years behind the rest of the general population despite the fact that young people are coming to prison who have come from the outside world, it's like they come here and they adopt the mores of the carceral system. And like, you know, most Americans accept homosexuality. They tolerate it, they accept it, whatever. Well, in prison, you know, it's not okay to, to be queer or to be homosexual or to be transsexual. You're looked on as less of a person by the majority, especially those that are affiliated with kind of like the gang culture and drug lifestyle, that kind of like, could melu, but um, and for trans women that are more possible, I will say that it's uh, there's privilege there. Uh, one thing I know is that um, I don't know. You, I think you've seen my pictures, Troy. Like, uh, it's been very hard for me in terms of like uh, sexual approaches and trying to fend off would be predators and stuff like that. But as far as physical violence goes, I think that I've actually had it less. Um, you know, not quite as bad as some of my other transgender sisters or some of my um, LGBT family in prison. And I think it's just because to some of the guys that would pick on another queer person, I really think that it is, it's passing privilege. They feel like it's too much like hitting a woman, maybe. I don't know. I can't reason for their mentality, but I haven't completely escaped by at all. And um, the reality is, is that we say things like words don't hurt, but I've been on the walk before going to a call out or going to my detail assignment or going to get pill call or going to a church service or going wherever the heck I'm going. And people have said nasty things to me, whether it be nasty in a sexual way or whether it's like kind of like, oh, you're a freak or weirdo. People have flat out pointed at me and laughed. And outside, it's very different from me outside. I never faced um, kind of forced disclosure of my trans status outside. I never have tried to fool anybody or conceal that I was transgender, but I was also never in the position where everybody, just by virtue of where I'm incarcerated, everybody knows my business. And um, so it doesn't matter how passable I am. If anything, it actually makes me stick out more. And it's been tough. It's, I have dealt with a lot of things and um, I can't say that I've ever really felt safe ever. I can't say that there's really ever been a time that I haven't been kind of operating with this haze or fog of just being like imminently aware of where I am and how dangerous it is. And you know, like in movies or in like popular little sayings of like the tension was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. Well, like Mm -hmm. there is a kind of haze of violence that lays over some of the camps, but it's so thick. The, the feeling of danger is so palatable. Like when I was at um, Smith State Prison, when I was at Telfair State Prison, it was so palatable. Like when you came through intake, the moment you touched the compound, you could feel it. Like you could feel like people die here and they die here regularly. And um, in a lot of ways, I, I give thanks to God and I give thanks to the things that I've been through in my life prior to prison. But also I've been in prison so long that I've kind of acclimated because it's given me a wherewithal to be able to persevere. Um, I'm sorry, because I feel like I kind of just got lost trying to encapsulate all that. It's totally fine. Um, I, I, I'm so sorry that you've gone through all that. It's it's just completely unjust. Um, 
but you know, I, I want to say this in a way that isn't patronizing, but it does take a lot of courage to be in prison and to stand up for yourself in the way that you're doing. Um, I think so anyway, like it's must be really hard. And, but I, I'm, I'm glad that you're sticking with your identity and you're standing up for yourself and demanding rights for yourself. You've talked about how you've um, promoted a lot of this reform in this area. So hopefully you're making it easier for people who come after you. And that is 100% the goal. And not even just for queer LGBT people, but for other prisoners. They should, yeah. I want to provide a system that is rehabilitative and that has transparency and there is accountability and that it's safe and that you're able to do your time because it's so sad. I know so many people that come to prison on three, four, five-year sentences and what should have been a period of time for them to learn from their mistakes and then go home to their families and start over ended up being a death sentence for them. And uh -huh. that's not all right. It's not all right at all. And um, I, I literally, I know so many, I stopped making friends about three years ago. Um, I have a few associates, but I stopped really letting myself love people in here. I show them love, but I stopped really letting myself love them because um, three years ago, three, well, three and a half years ago, my friend Tasha was sitting next to me. She had been in an argument with a guy earlier and um, she was... <laughs> Tasha was one of the best people, so smart, brightest smile, good heart, can light up a whole room, but she didn't take any shit. And um, the guy was kind of shooting shots at her. He was new. He'd only been in the dorm for a few days. And Tasha's a little bit more outgoing than I am, a little bit more of a kind of hermit, a nerd. And so Tasha kind of fired back at him. And one moment we're sitting there watching, real, uh, what is it, uh, Love and Hip Hop Atlanta. And the next moment, I literally, the side of my face and my shirt and stuff was covered with her blood because the guy came up and stabbed her about four or five times in her neck and in the side of her face. So wow, it, I've, and I've seen this happen. I've been in close proximity to it and I've heard the stories. But what's so crazy, if you just go on Google, Google it on Facebook, there's thousands, tens of thousands of families um, trying to figure out why they're kids, their grandkids, their husbands, their wives, their moms, their dads are going to prison and dying. Wow, that is that is just horrifying. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, whenever I'm doing some kind of reporting or talking about these really difficult topics, I try to leave off on like a positive note. I'm like, you know, how are things getting better? How can people get involved to make things better? But, you know, sometimes I feel like that's not the case here. Like, I don't want to sugarcoat things for people that I, I don't see a lot of prison reform happening. Um, maybe I'm wrong and I, I would love to be wrong, but I would question, love you know, to be wrong too. But the reality is, is that, you know, there are two separate United States Department of Justice investigations in Georgia. And I don't think that means shit because they investigated Alabama and they investigated Mississippi and nothing has changed there. And, um, I'm not going to stop lending my voice to it. I'm not going to stop working for it. And if anything, I will become more potent and more determined once I'm out. But the reality is, is that there isn't really a bright story to the carceral system right now. I think that, that that portion of the book has to be written still. And there are people who are helping to get it written. You, just by having this conversation, are are one of the authors of a better system that will eventually emerge one day, you know? And um, 
I'm not sure that's going to happen in my lifetime because there were abolitionists and reformers before me, some of them are contemporaries, like Miriam Kaba, who, you know, I'm, I always say this to paraphrase her. She essentially says something like, you know, we're all adding our own little bits to the work of those who came before us and the work of those who will come after us. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I I fully share your vision. And I that is just really well said. And I, I think we can't create this change without talking about it first or imagining an alternative. Like it's sometimes really difficult to imagine a world where we're not prosecuting people for drugs and, and, and or or a lot of things or even just having this carceral system that's just fucked up for so many other things. You know what I mean? Like, but you have this vision and, and a lot of other people do. And I want to hold out hope that it can change. It can, it will take time and it will probably even take a few more generations, but it will change. And uh, that's the reality of it. But it's good to know where we stand because if we know where we stand, if we know where we are, then we know as generally speaking, where we're trying to get to. So it sets a goal for us. People always complain about where they are, but where you are is a good thing because where you are lets you know where you're trying to get and how hard you have to work and how much further you have to go. Yes. Yes. Um, well, is there anything else that you want people listening to this to know about what it's like in prison um, or, or anything like that? Uh, not that I could think of. No, I think that uh, people yeah. just need to know that prison is full of human beings. Like, these are people who are, some of them have done bad things, but I can honestly tell you that some of the kindest, some of the most intelligent, some of the most creative people that I know are incarcerated. But more importantly is every day outside in the free world, people do bad things. Maybe not as bad as some of the things prisoners have done, but they do bad things and they allow themselves the grace to have their personal story retold. They don't spend the rest of their lives defining themselves by that one bad thing, but it's always a part of, of their story. Prisoners want, they want redemption so much more than people on the outside think that they do. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, as prisoners are so much more worthy of redemption than people on the prison, on the outside of prison often think that they are. There is so much potential here and there's so much beauty here. Don't get me wrong. There's so much sadness and so much darkness here too, but there is. And we have to begin seeing these people in here as people, not monsters, not junkies, not whatever. There are some people that I hate to say this, but this is the truth. There are some people, but they are the minority, the vast, vast minute minority of people that aren't going to change. And they don't want to change. And mm-hmm. there's someone that can't change. They're wired that way. But the vast majority of people behind these prison walls, they are just two shakes away. All they need is an opportunity and somebody to, to give them a chance to. Because a lot of them have had to learn how to believe in themselves. Nobody else will. So if you were to provide them the opportunity and show them a little belief, they would soar off. Remember in Peter Pan, he was telling Wendy that she could fly if she believed she could. Right, right. That's all these people need. That's all they need is for somebody to just tell them that you can do it and um, to provide the way. And so if we could make that happen somehow, we'd see a whole lot of people soaring around. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you completely. Um, There's everybody has great potential like that, except for maybe a really, really small minority of people 
I'd say less than 1%. Um, and, and I guess that small, small, less than 1%, maybe, maybe they need to be in prison. But for the most part, I think this system doesn't work. It doesn't help re- re- rehab people. It doesn't make our cities safer. It doesn't do anything for anybody. It just inflicts suffering. And I would love to be an abolitionist in theory, but I just can't mentally conceive of a suitable alternative because there will always be, to some degree, violence. There will always be some degree people that are wicked and do bad things, you know. But do I think that those people are significantly less than what the kind of a the school mind or the, the kind of group mind thinks? Absolutely, I do. Um, I would love to be an abolitionist in theory, but I think that there will always be a place um, in our society for some type of partial setting. I know that that to a lot of my um, colleagues who are activists and abolitionists and whatnot, I know that they won't agree with that. They'll probably find that incredibly incendiary. But the reality is there are some people that we simply can't account for them. and. Um, I just, I, I, my vision is that one day prisons will be, instead of, you know, a state like Georgia having 30 something prisons, it might have two prisons, you know, mm-hmm. that would be my vision. Yeah. Because we would hopefully have communities that cared for people and, and provided for people. And we're also more rehabilitative and restorative and also more diversionary in terms of justice approaches, but also hopefully we would eliminate the criminogenic causes that you know, lead to incarceration rates so that prisons would truly be for, you know, that 1%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, see, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a very illuminating conversation. Um, we'll have links to your writing on filter and the show notes. Um, but is there anywhere on social media or anything online where people can find you? If, if not, that's totally cool. Um, yes, they, they can follow me on Twitter at uncaged critique. Okay. Thank you very much. I very much so enjoyed our conversation today and I appreciate you and I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Narcomedia, co-hosted and co-produced by Zachary Siegel, Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Aaron Ferguson. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. We are excited to announce that a portion of the proceeds from the show will now go toward the Urban Survivors Union, which is the National Drug Users Union, a group of directly impacted advocates for drug user health in America. This is the way social change happens from the ground up, and we are so excited to support this group that is doing such important work to fight stigma against people who use drugs. If you're a patron, you also get free stickers which are personally mailed to you. You can also request a shout-out on the show. And now, patrons can even get 30% off of merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, One that says, there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we are so grateful to the folks that make this show possible. A little goes a long way, so thanks for making Narcotica happen. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon just isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. 
tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. You can also rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad1, drug-using producer. Well, I guess that's all. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Until next time.